You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Welcome back. Julie and me had the pleasure to sit down with the majority owner and president of Brooks Green LLC, Erica Fields, and her wife, Patience. Brooks Green is a true family effort, a family that's been in the grain business since the early 1970s, originally started by her father, Brooker. The family business includes her nephew, Nick, wife, Patience, daughter, Kara, whose support of and passion for the industry is truly inspiring. And Tori, who runs their craft side of the business that they tease that they would really love to adopt her. Erica is also a champion for gender equality justice. She's been a member of the NGLCC, the DDBS, and Brooks Grain is a certified LGBT business enterprise. Erica shares her amazing journey in the whiskey community as a premier grain supplier, her relationship with master distillers, and so much more, folks. Grab a rye cocktail, sit back, and enjoy the show. Erica and Patience, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank Absolutely, you. Absolutely, yes. Can you tell us about your great love affair with whiskey? <laughs> <laughs> Well, for me, it started quite some time ago. Um, uh, my, uh, my family has been involved in supplying rye to the distilleries uh, for most of my life. Uh, my dad started uh, supplying the distilleries down here in Kentucky back in the late 50s. Um, and uh, he was working for a small family firm based out of Minneapolis. And so when we were growing up, many a time there would be uh, visitors from the various distilleries come to Minneapolis to, to meet with him and uh, he would bring them by the house for cocktails before they went out to dinner and and of course uh, uh, when we were you know young and, and kids we'd, we'd get to meet them all and call them Uncle Doc and Uncle uh, uh, Fred and Uncle, you know, whoever. And they were just wonderful. And so we just had this relationship with, with these people from as long as I can remember. Um, so for me, that's, that's when it all kind of started. Uh, then as I was growing up and I was in high school and, and junior high, um, you know, during the summer, on occasion, my father would bring uh, myself and my brother and sisters uh, on trips down to Louisville. Uh, to, he'd go on what he called the whiskey run. And uh, interestingly enough, a lot of his, uh, his contacts, they had children about our age. So, you know, probably two or three times in my life, I would be down here visiting and, and getting to know their kids. And um, it, it was just a lot of fun. So, it was kind of a family affair from, from day one. Oh, I love that. And you're still a whiskey drinker today, right? 
Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, I, you Let's know, check bourbon, in. <laughs> bourbon is my uh, drink choice. Uh, uh, I love rye whiskeys. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, on the on the Beam Suntory uh, uh, theme, uh, when I was in in college, I was going to school out in Spokane, Washington, and um, it was a, a big ski area. We used to ski in the Panhandle of Idaho, and it was beautiful uh, mountains there. And and we'd go out, and usually we'd bring uh, you know a, a boda bag of wine or this or that. But many occasions we brought a bottle of Jim Beam rye whiskey. Um, I, I think at the time it was probably one of the less expensive bottles of whiskey we could find in the liquor store. So that was probably a little bit to do with why we chose it, but we loved it. It was wonderful. And so um, I, I was uh, telling my father about it when I came home from college uh, one, one of the summers, and he swore up and down that Bean didn't make a rye whiskey. And you got to remember, this is back in like 1974. Um, and at that time, a lot of bourbons and especially a lot of rice were not marketed very far from Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana. Uh, so up in Minnesota, where we were, you know, the most popular whiskeys were Canadians. And, and there were a few, you know, the mainstay bourbons like an Old Forester or, or a Jim Beam White Label or, or you know, the, those old older brands were available. But you didn't have a lot of other things. I think the only rye that was available then was was uh, old Overholt really. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so he, he and I, you know, kind of argued a little bit about it. And he says, you know, I deal with all these people and I know they don't have a rye. Well, he actually <laughs> didn't deal with Beam because Beam was receiving their rye by truck and we only shipped or he only shipped by rail. So I did find a bottle of uh, that old yellow label rye whiskey in an obscure uh, uh, liquor store in rural Minnesota, <laughs> bought it and gave it to him for Father's Day in 1974. And uh, that was a family joke from then on. And uh, I've been drinking Jim Beam Rye ever since and continue to drink it now. I, it's still one of my favorite whiskeys. Uh, but for that reason, I, uh, when I got out of college and started in the grain industry, uh, and I started working with my dad to supply the distilleries, I, I had to figure out a way to supply beam because it, it, it meant a lot to me that, that I had so many great memories uh, of, of enjoying the product while I was in college. Uh, and, and finally, I figured out a way that we could bring rail cars in, unload them into trucks and, and ship them. And so starting in 1978, uh, I started shipping rye to Jim Beam and I've been doing it ever since. That's amazing. That is amazing. That's so great. Um, your experience in the grain industry and with the bourbon community, I mean, it spans over decades. Can you tell us the journey that led you to starting uh, Brooks Grain? Sure. Um, actually, um, you know, I, I, as I told you, my father had been in the business and he worked for a company by the name of Burdick Grain Company. It was a small family-owned business that, that uh, was into the specialty grains. Uh, my father handled corn and rye for the distilleries. Uh, they also did a lot of the malting barley that was shipped to the maltsters, many of whom were making malt for the distilleries. Um, they also did other uh, specialty grains. They did uh, a, a specific uh, grade of Durham wheat that went into puffed wheat, the cereals. Um, and so it, we were kind of a specialty um, grain company. And that's where I first went to work with my father. 
And so that's when I first got involved. And then they were bought by ConAgra, a large multinational firm. Um, and as ConAgra grew exponentially, Burdick was very focused still on the specialty grains. And the focus that ConAgra gave to us and the ability for, for us to continue doing the business the way it needed to be done became uh, harder and harder to, to manage within the scope of a, of a large multinational company. So I kind of left and, and went to several different places um, and, and finally found that, that it would be best if, if I did it on my own. And I, uh, I had been using Consolidated Grain and Barge, uh, a, a company that had all of the assets in Louisville that we currently use. And we had a very good relationship. And I was telling them that I was planning on, on, on starting my own business. And they said they would help me out. So uh, with their support, I started Brooks Grain in 2007. Um, I named it uh, after my father. His name was Brooks Fields. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was still alive at the time. And, and um, the first piece of swag I made was, was, uh, was some lowball whiskey glasses with the, with the logo and Brooks Grain across it. So I gave him a set that was the first person to get them. And uh, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but it didn't matter what time of day I went to visit him. He always would pull out those glasses and say, you know, it's got to be five o'clock somewhere in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. <laughs> and, uh, but he asked me, he says, why in the heck would you name your company after me? And I said, Dad, you know, I, you taught me everything about the grain industry, and, and you've got the, the best luck of anyone I know, and I certainly need that at this time. So that's why I picked the name Brooks, Brooks Grain. Oh, that's awesome. My goodness. Um, your family's had strong relationships with about every master bourbon distiller uh, throughout the decades. Can you share some of your favorite stories about um, working with them, especially the time you spent with Booker, who is such a legend and icon in the industry? Sure, sure. <laughs> so the, the first time I really met Booker was probably back in about 79, 78, 79. I had just started working with Beam, and uh, it, Beam was a lot smaller at the time, um, and their, their office was actually down right next to the distillery. It's this beautiful building that's, uh, that's got a, a, a stone facade and, and it was really neat. And there were a lot of wonderful people that worked in there that I got to know. And um, uh, Booker was already traveling quite a bit and, and not always there, but whenever I was planning a trip to come down, I would check with my good friend, Don Calhoun, who, uh, who was very close with Booker. And I'd say, listen, I'm coming down. And he said, well, you know, Booker's going to be here this week. If you can make it that week, we'll get together. So I, I would always try to fix it so that I could be down there and usually try and show up around 4 o'clock. And so we could have a bit of a business <laughs> meeting. And then go into the, into the break room, uh, sit at a table, and they would open a closet that had uh, bottles of Jim Beam in it, pull one out, and we would start – having a sip of whiskey and telling jokes and stories. And, and uh, uh, I always love to tell jokes. And I think those who knew Booker knows that he loves to tell stories as well. So we, we really had a lot of fun and, and it was, it was a good time. I also love that. You know, I think that I'm one of the, the last time I spoke with you, how close the name Booker and Brooks. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. actually um, my father's name was Brooks and he went by the nickname Brooker. 
And so um, he was actually down, I wasn't with him at the time, but he came down here just after he retired in the early 80s. And uh, he and Don Calhoun uh, were, were going to get together. And, and Don said, hey, Brooker, why don't you come on out here? Uh, Booker's in town and he'd love to get a chance to get to know you. So they, they got together and, of course, regaled each other with lots of stories. And Booker actually gave my dad a bottle of Booker's. And, uh, I, you know, unfortunately, no one took a picture. It would have been great. Uh, it would have been but, awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, I, you know, they kidded each other back and forth. And, and uh, uh, I have uh, since had the bottle in my possession uh, since uh, he, he had retired uh, and, and had actually was downsizing and moving started giving me his whiskey collection and that was one of the prized possessions was that early bottle of Booker's. Uh, I believe it was distilled in 1979. Wow. And um, Hang on to that. Yeah. yeah, well, which means it had rye in it that I had mm -hmm. supplied them. So wow. um, that, that was kind of fun. And uh, actually that will go along with many of the other bottles in the collection to my nephew, Nick, who is carrying on grandpa's tradition he came to work for me about four years ago and so he, he's getting the uh the uh whiskey collection piece by piece i think we already gave him that bottle oh did we oh, okay. <laughs> lucky hey, guy <laughs> hey nick if you're listening <laughs> don't open it nick. Right. don't open don't it open it pass it on nick keep it sealed my goodness, that's very, that's amazing. What yeah. what changes have you seen in the rye industry across the years? You know, it's definitely gained so much popularity. I'd say, you know, in, within like the last even five years in in cocktails, um, with the bartenders and with with so many of our accounts, um, it, it is in high demand. What do you equate that to? Like, you know, it's it's interesting. I I, I personally think that. Uh, the, the TV show Mad Men, <laughs> when it came out, it, it, it chronicled a period of time where cocktails and I guess you would call it heavy drinking today was, was fairly, um, you know, widespread throughout the business community and, and, and in American society. Um, and actually, um, that era was about the same time that I was mentioning earlier when uh, in the mid 60s, I was I was young and my dad would have people over to the house for cocktails. So I, I, I really identified with that TV show. So when we watched it, because um, I, I was about the age of his kids, uh, Don Draper's kids. But when we watched it, I mean, I recognized all those whiskeys that they would have. Um, uh, in fact, Canadian Club, uh, which I believe is a Beam Suntory uh, label, was uh, the drink of choice of Don Draper. And it was really fun because I think I have an old bottle of Canadian Club in the collection of about that era. So the label's very similar. Um, no, I think we gave that to Nick. Oh, Nick. Yeah, has. okay. Nick, are um, you listening? Don't open that either. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it so, sealed, brother. But it, it, was, it, it was interesting because at that time, uh, and again, having gone through, uh, you know, 40 years of, of, of supplying the industry and seeing the industry go through its downturn in the late 70s through the late 80s, um, that, that, at that time, it was already rebounding quite well. Uh, there were a number of really good uh, bourbons out there. The rise hadn't really taken off, but as as people uh, started making more and more cocktails, I think, you know, people turned to the traditional 
uh, underlying whiskey that was used in those cocktails. And in many of them, it was rye because rye whiskey was, you know, prior to prohibition was actually a very, very prominent whiskey in America. Well, when I met you, I was drinking gin and tonics. And I remember <laughs> you asked me to give you a drink and to pour you a drink. And I did. And I handed it to you and you said, I don't want five fingers. I filled the whole glass oh, yeah. <laughs> with, with, with rye whiskey. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, and that was in 2011. And, and since then, I, I love it. I, I think I drink a gin and tonic, uh, what, every couple of years. And it's usually when I'm in the pool. You know, and now it's, it's all rye or bourbon. Yeah. Absolutely. And I have absolutely seen the changes. Um, you know, if you look throughout all of the bars and, and the clubs throughout America, they have cocktail lists. And a lot of the bartenders just enjoy so much making a cocktail, whether it's an old fashioned or your favorite. Manhattan. Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah. I love Manhattans. So oh, I wish I had one right now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're fun to make. To make and they're yeah. really fun to drink. <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, but no, I've seen, it's been a uh, it's been really interesting to see how the, the the focus has been more and more on specific whiskeys for specific uh, cocktail uh, um, iterations and 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 it, which is neat because I think it it brings whiskey into a more of a. a, a prominent uh, level of, of, of beverages or of alcoholic beverages. Yeah, I love that the consumer, uh, they're very educated now on what they're drinking. Mm -hmm. And they do ask for things by name and by flavor. And it's interesting, um, patients that you said that used to drink gin and tonics. And now, I mean, of course, because of Erica, I'm sure you're big, yes. you love <laughs> rye or in the family. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I do think once you turn someone onto a rye whiskey or onto any bourbon and give them a real chance and explain to them like all the rich flavors and how mixable it truly is with so many different things, whether it's a classic cocktail or more contemporary twists on a classic, it's really kind of hard to go back. Yeah. In fact, uh, a number of years ago, um, a, a, an old friend of mine who's long retired from Seagram's um, Jose Puebla, who was in charge of uh, their research, and, and after Diageo and Pernod had bought them, he stayed on with Diageo for a while and was in charge of all of their uh, North American research. Um, he, was, he was visiting me in Minneapolis, and I had a gathering. Um, I was actually doing a local play, and he came to see it, and I had a <laughs> cast party. And at the time, um, you know, uh, Canadian uh, or um, um, God, I can't even think anymore. Crown Royal. Thank you. Um, at the time, Crown Royal was their flagship in North America. And so he brought a, a special bottle. And then I went out and bought a couple of bottles from um, from. Um, uh, you know, the local liquor store. And we also I had some old Seagram's bourbon that had been in in uh, in the bottle since the early 1970s that my father had some of them the seals had cracked so I went ahead and opened them I, <laughs> I guess I might as well consume them and I used them in a taste testing with with uh, actually at that time we actually had four roses as well so we had kind of a, a an interesting tasting and the leader of the tasting was Jose 
who was in charge of their research. So I had all these actors from Minnesota sitting around a, a, a table and we had two different types of Crown Royal and we had four roses and an old Seagram's bourbon that would have been very, very similar. In fact, it was probably made in the old Prentice plant, which is now Four Roses, um, you know, 50 years earlier. And to try and compare those and then have Jose kind of tell you what you should get in the nose, what you should taste in, in, in the sections of your taste buds was amazing. And it changed everyone's attitude towards whiskey. It was great. Isn't that great? It just takes a moment a moment of that, that, that snapshot, right? That snapshot yeah, of bourbon exactly. and just to give them like, Hey, this is, this tastes really great. You don't need to be scared of it. It yeah. tastes so good. I think a lot of the consumers that maybe have never had bourbon before or risk whiskey or especially anything made with rye have this misconception, like it's going to be so strong. It's going to burn my throat. It, yeah, I'm scared. Yeah. Do I shoot it? What do I do with it? So, well, in fact, uh, you know, another whiskey out there, uh, Wild Turkey, um, which is, um, you know, we've been supplying them for years and years. And, and uh, you know, it, it kind of had a reputation, I guess, similar to a Jack, that it was a bar. It was a whiskey that was kind of a rough whiskey and everything. Well, it's actually a very, very well-made whiskey. And, and Jimmy Russell's been doing a, an amazing job, you know, for his whole career. And, you know, before before they were um, uh, they were bought. Currently, they're owned by Campari out of Italy, and and they've done a great job of really promoting the brand. But I remember I used to would I used to go down and and I'd I'd go visit him, and I'd I'd call Katrina, who was his assistant, and and say, Hey, I'm going to be in town next week, uh, and and she'd line up a lunch, and and we'd go, and and I'd pick him up, and we'd just go to a little diner somewhere in Lawrenceburg, and just sit around for about an hour, and. I'd listen to his stories and, and we'd have a, you know, we'd have an iced tea uh, with, with a nice, uh, with a nice sandwich or whatever. But one time in particular, I happened to be coming down and they were having the Burgoo Festival in Lawrenceburg. And actually at the time, I really had no idea what Burgoo was. And, uh, and so he was explaining and he says, you know, instead of going to the diner, why don't we go down to the Burgoo Festival? You get real so, Real he, and I, <laughs> he and I and Katrina walked downtown and there were booths out and they all had their special burgoo and, and every two seconds someone would say, Jimmy, how you doing? Jimmy, Jimmy. And, you know, we didn't get any conversation in, which was fine. It was fun to watch. And we, we got free burgoo from pretty much everybody, which was even better. And we get back to the office, and Jimmy was so apologetic. He says, I'm really sorry we didn't get any time to talk. And it's like, Jimmy, no, this was wonderful. I really had a great time. He's, he's such a character. I oh, yeah. I, I adore him, and I respect him so much. And I can tell you very quickly, the first time that I met him years ago as well, and took it was just he and I took me around the distillery, I learned nothing about what was in the bottle, but I learned so much about him and his family and his friends. And yeah. but uh, he didn't really talk too much about the liquid, which I thought was super cool. He just wanted to paint the picture of his family and his past and his history and for me to get to know him. Yeah. Right. No, he, I knew. Yeah. He wanted you to go home and learn on your own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For well, sure. and that's, yeah, <laughs> that's what's been fun is, is to be on the other side and, and to be, um, you know, in the, in this, the grain supply chain for these people. 
Um, and having seen it, really, it's dramatically changed. The, the volumes are higher. Um, you know, the, where we get our, our grain has, has, you know, changed over the years. You know, originally, a lot of it was grown in, in the northern regions of the United States. And, and um, with other competing grains, the farmers have so many other choices that are, are more lucrative than, say, rye or even barley that it's, it's moved further north. Uh, a lot of it comes out of Canada, Western Canada. Again, very conducive to growing the best quality rye. Um, uh, we do have quite a bit of sourcing in Minnesota, Wisconsin, North Dakota as well. Uh, but we actually have reached into Europe over the last 20 years and brought rye in from Europe, which is a incredibly high quality. Um, and some of the varieties that are currently being grown in, in, in Canada and the U.S. had their roots in their hybrids that had their roots in, in, uh, in uh, Europe as well. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a, a, a unique blend of, of, of origin points, uh, growing conditions in, in certain regions that are more conducive to growing the, the best quality consistently and managing the logistics. And uh, so it's, it's, it's quite an interesting uh, um, operation. Has there been a lot of change with the, as far as the growing conditions that you're seeing in Europe and here in Canada and here in the U.S. with Mother Nature not being so predictable anymore? Are you seeing any, any so issues, far, any red flags? Is it kind of business um, as usual all the time? I guess the variability of weather has been a little bit of a challenge. Um, and and in, in the northern tiers, uh, you know, we're talking, you know, the, the, you know some of the northernmost growing um, areas of the world, um, their weather hasn't been as affected in terms of, you know, um, you know, major storms like hurricanes, things like that, or, or mm -hmm. wildfires, but there, there, there's been more extended uh, drought periods. There's been more extended um, uh, winter periods where you can get winter kill um, on, on some of the fall seeded crops. So, so there has been some, some, some issues, and, and we have to monitor it very closely. Um, yeah, I bet because, you know, when we look at, like, tequila, for instance, you know, they definitely keep a very close eye on the agave plants. And so many times, you know, there's a shortage a lot, and they have to predict way out, you know, to make sure that their supply is enough for the demand. But those plants also take many years to produce right where the right. growing season for rye is how long um it's well it's planted in the fall mm -hmm. uh, so it's fall seeded uh, usually in uh september um and then it, it goes just like winter wheat which they grow a lot of winter wheat around here um and then it, it comes out of dormancy in the spring and it's it's about a two and a half month uh three month growing season it's harvested uh which is actually a positive thing for rye because uh, is harvested in, in, in late July, early August. And usually if you're going to have an, an extended hot dry period, it's towards the end of that growing season and more into the growing season of, of crops like corn or, or soybeans or, or spring wheats, um, any of the spring planted grains. So it, it usually comes off the field in, 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 a, in a timely manner. Um, so, but it's, it's been interesting to see the changes uh, of, 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 of location as well. Um, the other th biggest change I think that we've seen is, is the advent of the craft distillers. Um, 
And, um, you know, <laughs> unlike beer, where um, the craft brewers came into a space that was dominated by a few majors making relatively um, generic beers, um, the, the uh, craft distillers are actually only um, um, adding on to what the major distillers had been doing already for quite some time. Um, you know, we were talking about Booker earlier and, and Jimmy and, and, and people like that. Well, when I first met them was in the late 70s, early 80s, and they were dealing with the fact that at that time, bourbon and, and, and what they call brown goods were not very popular. And, you know, uh, they, were, they were trying to figure out a way to get people more interested in, in bourbons again. And, and one of the main things they, they started working on was putting out, uh, you know, specialty bourbons or higher end bourbons. You know, one of the first ones was Booker's. Um, I think old granddad 114 came out early on. Uh, uh, you know, Wild Turkey put out some of their high ends, Eagle Rare, things like that. Um, to try and, and, and focus on, on picking the best barrels, uh, creating mash bills that were more focused on a, on a specific flavor profile that they wanted out of the grains, out of the yeast and everything else. And so when the craft boom started 10, 12 years ago with these small distillers popping up, there was already some very, very good whiskeys out there that weren't the generic, um, you know, standard brand that these people had been putting out. The mash bills were probably similar. Uh, maybe uh, the, the, the warehousing was, uh, was uh, you know, they, they were the select barrels. They were in specific areas of it. The, they were higher proof, everything else. So uh, in a way, the major distillers set the stage for the craft distillers to come in and fill in some some little areas that that would help everybody. So I think in the in the whiskey and the distilling industry, um, craft distilling, unlike beer, has been a real positive for everybody, and not taking market share per se away from the majors. Um, and it's been fun to watch. And we've been involved. Uh, we started getting involved about ten years ago. Um, we we um, at the time, my daughter was working with me, and she had met some people in the craft space and decided that she wanted to explore it. And we didn't know how big it was, what, what, what to expect, but it seemed like a lot of fun to find out. <laughs> so we started going to the conferences, the American Crafts uh, um, uh, Spirits Association and the American Distilling uh, Institute. Uh, they have annual events, and we would go we got to realize that some of these small guys needed small bags of, you know, 50 pound bags of grain. Some of them needed it milled um, because they weren't going to be able to do that themselves. So we started getting involved in that early on. And actually uh, two years ago, we built a mill and packaging line at our elevator over in, uh, in uh, uh, West Louisville um, to, to provide this for our customers. And it's been a lot of fun. It's not huge, but it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's fun. And, and it's interesting to, to hear the stories of all these small guys as they start, you know, creating their dream. Oh my gosh. I bet so. You know, and they're all over the country. I think that's something else that um, maybe the consumer isn't aware of. You know, it's one thing we're all, we're all definitely bourbon and, and whiskey nerds <laughs> on this um, on this podcast, but I think that um, a lot of people, 
think that bourbon or whiskey can only come from Kentucky. Right. Right. They don't even realize that it, it can be made across the country and it definitely is. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, I will say that Kentucky's done a brilliant job of, of promoting bourbon. Um, you know, they have the Bourbon Trail, they have the Urban Bourbon Trail, which uh, until COVID, uh, we enjoyed uh, visiting. Um, we live across the street from Angel's Envy. So it's just a, a walk away. <laughs> and, uh, um, but, uh, you know, and they've done a really good job. In fact, we're, we actually got registered as Kentucky Proud because, you know, our, our plant is there. And, and we actually provide all of the grains, not just the rye. We, we, do, uh, we have wheat, we have malt, and we have corn because we handle all of them at the elevator there. Um, our, our major focus uh, in our bulk side is rye, but for the craft, we do all of them. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, they've done a really good job. But you're right. I mean, a, a lot of these uh, distilleries, uh, you know, there's Sagamore up in Baltimore. They do a brilliant job making a wonderful rye whiskey. And you have uh, numerous uh, distilleries in Indiana and, and Ohio. Uh, we go all the way down into South Carolina and, and North Carolina. We have some customers in Texas. We have customers down in, in, in Florida, and uh, we even, uh, I think we've got one out in Arkansas. And there are all these small distilleries, and, and, and it's, it's just fun. And, and every one of those distillers started with a dream. And, um, and you know, many of them went to the um, course that's uh, taught over at uh, um, uh, uh, Moonshine U, which Patience actually went through. She went I through did. the course. You yeah. did. Did I you? Did. Did you, love it? did you love the course? I did. It was wonderful. And I'm still in contact with a lot of the people that I went through the course with. It's a week-long course, and you learn everything. Um, as a matter of fact, you, you make your own product. Um, yeah. And um, we haven't opened it. We're going to actually keep it for 10 years, see what happens. <laughs> don't, don't put it in the closet where Nick can get a hold of it. <laughs> We did have a sip. It was good. It was good. But it, but it was wonderful to learn a lot because, you know, I've been helping a little bit in the family business um, since 2011. I go to conferences and, you know, when you're a grain, uh, in the grain business, um, especially a grain merchant, you work all the time. And Erica works seven days a week. So it was nonstop. So it was just natural for me to help out a little bit here and there, you know, whether as a consultant or a representative or going to all of the conferences that we go to together. And um, we've had a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Well, you can be part of the conversation. I mean, you can actually have the conversation about the product and the process and about your customers as well. Is there a future craft whiskey in the works? Um, it, there could be. <laughs> <laughs> Retirement isn't that far away, and I've got to do something, right? Yeah. Well, you're inspired by your father yeah. in his retirement, right? To, yeah. To never stop doing something. Yes, exactly. So. I asked you a question on our phone call, and I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you were able to get an answer or not. And I don't know if you remember, but oh, the question yeah. is, and maybe just, just give us your theory, if not, Erica, but what, why does almost every bottle of rye have a green label? What's up with that? Um, you know, I, I remember the conversation. I haven't really had uh, an opportunity to really ask anyone. Um, 
but I, the more I thought about it, um, when you when you think about rye, rye, the color of rye is a blue green. It's 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 actually a very pretty color, and it's and and as it grows, it's 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 kind of like wheat. It's a it's a very lush green field, and actually, as as the rye matures, if you're driving by a rye field, there's kind of a bluish gray green color to the to the the heads of the of the of the stock as the as the kernels inside are maturing so i'm i'm wondering whereas whereas corn is yellow it um um the stock of course is green growing but but the 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 the, uh, the kernels of the of, of the ear of corn are always a yellow color so there's there's uh you know and if you notice a lot of bourbons have a brownish you know everything is the liquid is brown because of the barrel but but the corn itself is is yellow, whereas the the rye would be more of a greenish color. And I'm wondering if maybe that wasn't where it came from. It's a theory. Yeah, I like that theory. <laughs> stick with that. Green grain. Not yeah. Let's stick with that. I don't want it to come out that maybe it was just cheaper to do or something. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> you know? we ran out of other ink, so yeah, we used green. <laughs> there are only two companies that have labels and green. So we all use green. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> or you could say we, we made them green la uh, labels because once you try our rye, you'll be green with envy. Oh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, can you, what else do we have here for you? Um, we, I would love to also talk about a lot of your, your activism and a lot of these amazing projects that you work on um, in Louisville, uh, things that you champion. Can you tell us your passion around gender equality, especially in the industry and all the good stuff that you've done for the community? Sure. Well, you know, um, I, um, I started out my career in the, in the late seventies, <coughs> excuse me. And, um, at the time, it was a very male-dominated field, and um, as as uh, as the industry grew and went through its downturn and started growing again, and and companies were expanding, more and more women were were becoming a part of the workforce. And um, you know, from from the uh, you know most of the people that I deal with are on the procurement side, on the you know on the purchasing side. Um, and, and there were a number of uh, women that started coming into the industry in, in the, uh, you know, right, right around the, you know, early 2000s. And, um, and it was fun because I got to deal with, uh, you know, the, the buyer from Beam um, that, that came in. Her name was Deborah Gillis, uh, and she was there for, I think, 10 years. Um, and she was the first buyer that I, I remember dealing with directly that was in charge of grain buying and she had other hats to wear. I think she did the glass and some other things as well. And she was wonderful and I really enjoyed working with her. And in fact, um, when, when uh, my daughter came to work for me in 2009, I had just started or eight, I had just started Brooks grain and I needed someone to come in and help me, help me with it. And, and she, uh, she thought it was a good idea. I don't know if I would have, had the courage to ask her to join if I hadn't already been dealing with some women that were having great success within the industry, great support within their companies. And I saw the transition in, in, in the uh, procurement area uh, towards much more equal opportunity for everybody. 
Um, it actually coincided also um, with the period when I began my transition. Uh, I had gone through my, my life in the industry, uh, and finally, after I had started Brooks Grain, um, decided that it was also a good time for me to be uh, true to myself and to really allow myself to be the person that I really was. And so um, at that time, my daughter uh, asked me the question, well, what are you going to do about your business you just started? <laughs> and I, um, I said, well, you know, that's a good question. I don't think there's a lot of uh, uh, information out there on steps to follow. So I guess we'll have to figure this one out. And, that, and she said at that time, if, if, if you'd like, I'd love to carry on the family business and help you out. And again, turning to Jim Beam and, and Deb, you know, she and I had gotten to be close. Um, and, you know, she, I, I knew some of the hurdles that she'd had in the industry and how well she had done with them and, uh, and the support she had. So I felt confident that my daughter would do all right. And, uh, you know, and, you know, we just hoped that by being honest and being forthright and, and, and really, you know, helping everyone who was going on this journey with me to take the journey as well, uh, we would be able to come out the other side uh, stronger, better, and, and happier. And, and fortunately, it, it worked out well. And every single one of our customers has been incredibly supportive. Um, and it's, it's, it's been great. Um, you know, I, uh, I recently did a podcast for Jim Beam uh, during Pride Month and was able to tell the story. And I even shared the, the letter that uh, I wrote to Deb uh, telling her about my transition. And, you know, she, she was great. We're still very good friends. She, uh, she left Beam and took some time off and is now working with uh, one of the corn suppliers, local corn suppliers. So she, she's now on my side of the business. <laughs> and uh, we haven't met because of COVID, but we've been oh. communicating. And uh, Well, your transition went so well that you became an activist. You were involved then with oh, several yeah. organizations. Um, and then we, when we moved down here, um, we helped to start Civitas. Correct. Yeah, what, what happened was um, actually in... Um, in the, uh, you know, shortly after transition in, in the early 2010, 12 period, um, I was approached by Jack Daniels uh, and they, they asked if, if my business was certified as a LGBT business enterprise. And at the time it wasn't, but I had already gotten involved with the, the local affiliate of the National LGBT Chamber of Commerce in Minneapolis. I uh, knew them quite well and, and had worked on some activism with them in the trans community. Um, and so I approached them and said, how do I do this? And they were able to help me get certified. So I became a certified LGBT uh, business enterprise in 2014. Uh, but interestingly, it was at the request of one of the distillers. So, Isn't that something? Yeah. It's um, just like you would think that they would be so close-minded maybe, like that's a perception, yeah. it's just big boys club, and anybody who's even just a little bit different or doesn't look like them or whatever, it's just like, forget it. Yeah. It's, Please uh, no, tell us that that's great. just not the case. No, and, and everyone from, uh, you know, it really doesn't matter which, which of the customers. We, we really haven't had uh, any issues. In fact, we've we've been fortunate enough to to use our experience as a way of helping people uh 
here locally, um, as well as you know nationally, uh, who are in situations where they need uh, they need some guidance. Um, uh, the companies that we supply and and the people that we deal with, um, you know, they, they know I'm an open book and I'm I'm able to give them any guidance that they want. Uh, and as patients had mentioned, when we moved down here in 2017, there was no uh, affiliate chamber of commerce to the NGLCC, uh, which is the acronym for National LGBT Chamber. And so we, we approached them and my friend who had started the Minneapolis chapter was now in charge of all of the affiliates uh, living in DC working for the, for the uh, national. And so we approached uh, Sam and, and she, she told us that, you know, they, they'd love to see one started down here. So patients and I, along with, and it happened to coincide with other people in Louisville asking them at the same time if there was a chapter here and how they could get one started. So we all kind of came together back in 2000, late 2018, and we, we, we put together a consortium of people and we started a, a chapter here called Civitas. Um, we, we were about uh, two years old, no, a year and a half old, and um, uh, COVID's kind of put us on hold. I mean, we aren't <laughs> doing a lot of programming right now, but everyone, got, it's putting uh, us we, all on hold, Eric. Yeah. yeah. But one of the last things we did before COVID hit was uh, uh, David James, who's a local uh, um, president of the local uh, Louisville um, uh, City Council, had approached uh, patients and I and other people from Civitas at a fundraiser we were having and asked if, if there was any way he could help get LGBT businesses that are certified on the city of Louisville's diverse supplier list. And it happened. And we said, oh, absolutely. Awesome. Bravo. So we worked yeah. with the city council. We worked with the mayor's office. Uh, we worked with uh, the NGLCC. And lo and behold, it, it, in less than a year, it was an ordinance that passed unanimously by wow. the city council. That's amazing. In Louisville. And we had a signing ceremony at city hall, uh, like the week before everything shut down. I think it was March 6th. <laughs> and so it was like the last public event that I went to and that a lot of people went to, but, um, it was, it was really neat to see how we were able to get that uh, change uh, happening. Yeah, well, when we moved down here, um, it was very important to Erica and I to be activists. Uh, we were both in organizations in Minneapolis, uh, Rotary. Erica was the president of the Rotary Club, um, and we were both in NGLCC. And we wanted to make a change here. You know, again, Erica's um, transition was successful and you want to give back and you want to help people um, and you want to help people in business. And so we're really proud of Civitas. Um, we're proud of, of what we've accomplished with many great people down here. Um, we've been here almost three years, right? It's been three years. A little over three, three and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, and we're building on that. And I can't wait until COVID is over so we can, <laughs> oh, amen. So we can continue the work. Yeah. Well, I can't wait um, to see what you all do next. Yeah. Um, that, that will be something we'll talk about uh, at, at a later date. 
Um, we are tight lipped. Yeah. You're tight lipped um, <laughs> right now. But, but I hope you'll come back to the show. I really oh, absolutely. hope. And I hope when this is over that we can all have a big, huge glass of bourbon <laughs> together. Yes. In person. Yeah. I just want In to person, a please. Oh my I know. I mean, you know, we're, we're enjoying uh, bourbon in, the, in our living room, but it's, it's not the same as being out with a bunch of friends and, and enjoying a cocktail, you know. What has this time taught you? Um, well, I guess it's, it's, it's taught me the, the importance of having a, a partner, uh, a spouse that, that you get along with. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's even it's, during COVID. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> how important it is <laughs> to really, um, <laughs> it's, it's, I, I think the importance of, of, of understanding how every moment that you're with people is a moment you need to cherish. I think pre COVID, you know, a lot of people took it for granted if they were with people or whatever, or they put it off, you know, and, and, you know, we've all heard the stories of people, you know, who wish they would have gotten together with, with a favorite uncle or aunt or something before they passed away. But here we are now in a situation where, you know, there's people that, you know, you, you, you can't celebrate their birthdays with them. You can't celebrate holidays with them. You can't, um, you know, there's many things you, you really can't do. Um, and so when we all get an opportunity to be together again, I think we need to cherish those moments and recognize how important they are and not just take them for granted. Absolutely. Over a, a glass of rye whiskey. Rye whiskey or bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to thank you both for joining the show today. And I think on that really positive, beautiful note, you know, we'll end here. But thank you both for your time and your energy. And I wish you both the best of health. And I can't wait to have you back on the show again. Oh, yeah, oh, that'd be great. You. Thank you for having us. And, and, and we're really excited to see how this turns out. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers! <laughs>